Well, we're continuing our boomerang series uh, of having sent out people and ones we've supported come back to us. And uh, this morning we have A.J. Swoboda, who seven and a half years ago stood on the stage with a group of 11 that were sent out to church plant in uh, the Hawthorne District of Portland. And uh, he's come back uh, various times to tell stories, but now there's more to tell. And uh, so, A.J., would you come up? We want to give you uh, your team's uh, boomerang. It says, in, in, uh, sent out in the fall of 2009 to Swoboda's. Thank goodness, that's so beautiful. I'll get to hear him in the first service, oh, and there's wow. a lot of exciting things to come up. Let's it, try it right now. Yes. So, G, welcome AJ to come to the chair this wow. morning. Unbelievable. Thank you. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. Love it. Um, I'm going to put this right up here, because it will distract me, because I have ADD. Um <laughs> That was very generous of you. Thank you. And would you, I, I want to, I wanna, this morning, uh, as we <clears throat> um, begin a reading of scripture, um, I want to just sort of, uh, I know Jared and Ann are gone today, uh, um, but it was seven and a half, yeah, seven and a half years ago, um, eight, actually eight years ago this last August that um, uh, myself, Quinn, uh, and our team stood here and uh, were, you became sort of surrogate parents for us and um, prayed for us and gave us money. Um, what, that was good, too. Um, <laughs> and um, and, and I, I just, I, I feel compelled every time. I've been, I've been with you maybe a dozen times over the years. Um, I, just, I just feel like it needs to be said because it's, they, they don't ever get credit for it. Um, Jared and Ann, there's no couple that has as deep a heart for raising young leaders up as Jared and Ann do. And um, I, just, I, I just feel like that needs to be said because they, they do it selflessly and they do it um, so well. And you do it so well too. So th- I want to th- say, if, I hope other people have said this to you, but thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and so... Uh, I, I want to tell you what's happened. So it's been seven and a half years, eight years. And we, uh, this little church of 11 people um, has become uh, this bustling um, group of 400 people in Southeast Portland. And we have been able to... Uh, You've got to stop clapping because I'm going to tell you a lot more. Um, <laughs> you be clapping all day because God's doing really good things. Uh, we've been able to plant two churches or been be a part of uh, helping plant two churches. And then today, I'm just going to, I'm going to share something with you that's really wild and crazy. And I've been given permission to ask you to help with it. So I'm not uh, doing it without permission. Jared and Ann have actually invited me to do that. And so I want to warn you in a few minutes, I'm going to give you a really great way to support something that God is doing uh, in Southeast Portland. But all that to say, I assure you that this work of God has not been because of my skill set. It is um, just a work of a really good God who really loves Portland still. (laughs) Some of you have wondered about that. And it's true, he does. Um, But I want to read the Bible this morning and talk a little bit about um, what Jesus... um, 
what Jesus does to all of us when we follow him. So I want to read just this kind of really short passage in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I've invited, I'm going to invite um, the, the scripture to be on the screen as well so you can see it there. Um, but I want to read just uh, four very short verses from the Gospel of Mark, um, which in, in, in my translation, this story is called The Calling of Matthew or The Calling of Levi. Um, and I'd just like to invite you to read this with me because it is... Um, uh, uh, literally, every preacher has like, they, there's this line where we say, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And that's usually filler language because we're supposed to say that we like the whole Bible. But I'm actually going to tell you that like literally this story in the Bible is my favorite story in the Bible. And uh, this story actually changed my entire life. And I'm going to tell you about that. Uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Would you read with me, follow along as we read this text. Once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. And a large crowd came to Jesus, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, uh, Matthew is also his name, sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi, or Matthew, got up and followed Jesus. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at, Matthew's, at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, I have come to call sinners. Uh, th this is the word of God, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Um, this, this story is, uh, is uh, the, the calling story of Matthew. Levi, it's the same name in the, in the Greek New Testament. Um, but this is the, the moment when Jesus comes to this guy uh, in his workplace. Notice he's at the tax collector's booth, so he's at work. He's at work. Um, if, I were, if I were given an opportunity to preach this text again, I probably would preach something on seeing our workplaces as a mission field because ultimately um, we've got to get out of thinking that the greatest ministry of the church is dragging people to church, uh, but that the ministry of Jesus is actually going with us to work, going with us to the places that we serve week in and week out, so go, Jesus going with us as we serve our kids, those sorts of things. So Jesus here goes to this guy, Matthew, as he's at work. Now, every single gospel um, has a different emphasis. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are these four gospels. And when you look at all four of these gospels, they all have kind of their unique story, their unique way of telling. They're telling the same story. It's not that they're different stories, and it's not that they're competing stories. But it's definitely that, um, it's definitely that if my wife and I went on a trip, we're going to tell different stories. But it's the same story. But we would see different things. Um, in this particular story, Mark... Uh, all of them are different. Matthew, for example, whenever Matthew tells a story, he always emphasizes how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Jesus is this perfect Jewish Messiah, which is why Matthew is always quoting the Old Testament. Luke, for example, was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. My dad is a doctor. Um, and doctors, um, in, in my own experience, and we can see this from the Gospels, doctors always give us way too many details. So when Luke tells his story, he always, he's the only one who gives us like little medical details, like, and she was sick for 38 years, or she bled for 13. She was the, Jesus is the only one, or Matt, Luke is the only one who gives us sort of those details. Um, uh, John, I love John. John's a poet. 
Um, John writes about love. Poets write about love. He writes about love. J- Jesus is all love in M- John's gospel. First, second, and third John are all about God being love, right? God is love. Uh, in, in fact, so much is John's gospel about love that when you read the gospel, John doesn't even name himself. He doesn't even say, I'm John who's written this thing. He doesn't even tell you who, who wrote it. He just gives himself this nickname. Do you remember what his nickname was in the gospel of John? The one whom Jesus loves, the beloved. It's almost arrogant, too. He, doesn't, he, he never tells us who it is. He never says, I, John, also a.k.a. the one who Jesus loves. He, just, he never even tells us who wrote it. I'm the one who Jesus loves. I'm beloved. I'm beloved. I'm beloved. And that's why I'm, I'm the one who Jesus loves. And I also I love uh, that none of the other gospel writers give him that nickname. Um, <laughs> not, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they didn't believe that. It's just, I almost wonder if they're like, yeah, we had nicknames for him, but that, that wasn't it, <laughs> like, at all. Um, so he calls himself the, the one who Jesus loves. And then Mark's gospel, one of the things about Mark's gospel that's unique to Mark is the emphasis on the cross. Uh, one of my favorite old uh, New Testament commentaries says that the whole gospel of Mark is about Jesus being led to the cross. The whole thing, birth to death, the whole thing is about Jesus going to the cross. And it's a famous line where he says, the gospel of Mark is the story of the cross with a ridiculously long introduction. The whole thing is about Jesus going to the cross. And what does Jesus do as he goes to the cross? He calls other people to carry the cross too. And he invites people into this really difficult assignment to die. And so when Jesus comes to Matthew, to Levi, and he, and he says to him, come and follow me, notice what Matthew does. He leaves behind his tax collector's booth, which would signify a major job change. If any of you are bosses and somebody did that in your business, they would be finding new jobs. It signifies a death of career. He leaves his family. He leaves his safety. He leaves his security. And he goes to follow Christ. And that is the invitation. Mark is, emphasizes over and over and over again the cross of discipleship. You will die. Jesus did not come to prop up your old life. He actually came that your old life would end and you'd get a brand new one. And in that brand new one, friends, you're gonna, you are bid to come and die. A few things from this text that I think are really interesting. For example, I notice in verse 1, it says that once again Jesus went by the lake. That's important because it means that Jesus walked a lot. And this was not the first time Jesus had gone by this lake. He had been by the lake a million times before. Verse 2, a large crowd came to Jesus. You know, in the normal world, we have an obsession with big crowds. Um, Our culture has an obsession with big crowds. It is the first time in history that people are famous for being famous. Celebrity is a you can become famous for just being known for being famous. Um, our culture is obsessed with crowds. Our culture is obsessed with how many people follow us on Twitter. How many people follow us on Instagram? Our culture is obsessed with crowds. What's fascinating about this text is Mark is not swayed. He's not impressed with crowds. And the text tells us that as all these crowds, perhaps even thousands of people, came to Jesus. That Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't focus on the crowds. Yeah, he does some teaching, but Jesus doesn't focus on crowds. Notice what Jesus does. As the crowds come to Jesus, Jesus focuses on the one. 
If there's a golden calf in American evangelicalism and our kinds of churches, it is that we have become so obsessed with crowds that we have forgotten the one. We spend all of our time digging, building massive groups, and we never stop to look the one in the eye and to lead the one. And are crowds important? Absolutely, crowds are important. But Jesus sees this one guy. When everybody else is looking at the crowds, what does Jesus do? He sees the one. And here, Jesus, again, having walked by a thousand times, Jesus had been to this lake before. This was not his first time walking by this lake. It was one of his favorite lakes, I'm sure. Jesus was a lake guy. He swam, he boated, you name it. He'd been by this lake a million times, except this time he sees a guy who he'd probably passed before, he'd probably seen before, sitting at the same tax collector booth day after day after day, and Jesus, this time around, he stops and he sees him and he looks at him. And in fact, I think, I think there's, there's a whole story in the Bible about this, and that is that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit have the capability to have open eyes to the things that God sees. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on Peter, the story says the Holy Spirit falls on the, text, on, on, on the church. Peter goes out, walks by the t- temple called Beautiful, and he walks by a beggar, a, a man who's been on the side of the road, a sick man who's been there day after day after day after day for years. Peter had seen him a thousand times before. He'd walked by him a million times, said no to him a million times. I'm not giving you anything. And this time, because the Holy Spirit has fallen on Peter, his eyes open to the things that break the heart of God. And he stops and he serves him. Because, friends, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, your eyes are open to the things that now God sees. I live in Southeast Portland. And some of you have driven by Southeast Portland year after year after year, and you are convinced that God is doing nothing there. <laughs> and here's the problem. Here's, here's the problem. Um, I, was, I took a couple, friend, an older couple, 75 years old, I took them on a tour through southeast, uh, the Hawthorne District um, this, this last week. And I was walking them through southeast and I was describing these things that are going on and what God is doing. And I was just saying, oh, these people are coming to faith, these people are repenting, these people are getting baptized, these, this business owner I'm meeting. And they were shocked because everything that they knew about southeast Portland was what they watched on the news. All they thought was it was just a bunch of progressive protesters who hated God. And and I'm walking them through, and I'm watching the Holy Spirit fall on them, and their eyes are open, and they're not seeing a group of people that they can't stand anymore. They finally see somebody in a place where God has been working forever, and God has not stopped working. See, some people, I love you, Hillsboro, but some of you have literally written off God in the heart of Portland. And you think God is doing nothing there. And I have come to you today as a prophet to tell you, open your eyes. God has not given up on this city. And actually, I have to convince my church that God has not given up on Hillsborough. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> and I got to tell you, friends, friends, I live and breathe and eat in Southeast Portland. And the gospel still works. It works. Open your eyes. Stop writing us off.
God is at work. Now, in this story, in this story, I want to just point out a few things. This is just, I think, some stuff to keep in mind if you want to follow Jesus. Um, just some biggies. Uh, number one, if you want to follow Jesus, I'm going to tell you three things that are going to happen to you. Um, three things that will happen to you. Um, number one, do you notice in the story that Matthew, Jesus says to Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew stands up and follow, begins to follow Jesus. And then immediately, verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Um, you read the commentaries on that section, and um, that's a really, we would call that an awkward transition. How do you go from Jesus says, come follow me, come follow me, to all of a sudden, um, they're eating at Matthew's house. And here's what I think happened. It's an awkward transition, but here's what I think happens. I think Matthew stands up, begins to follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, yes. And Matthew's like, I'll follow you. I love you. I'll give you my life. And Matthew starts following Jesus. And they're walking down the road. Matthew's following. He's got a new Lord. He's given his life to Jesus. He's walking down the road. And then somewhere down the road, Jesus turns to Matthew. And this is what I think he did. I think they're walking down the street. And, and Jesus, they're walking. And Jesus turns to him and he goes... Do you got any food? <laughs> I think Matthew was like, well, I, I guess. And so I think, I think Matthew followed Jesus. Jesus asked for food, and then I think Jesus followed Matthew back to his place. <laughs> and they have this barbecue, this food, and... Okay. I think if you're going to follow Jesus... At some point, really, really soon, really fast, you're going to find, number one, that Jesus is going to invite himself over for dinner. Okay. And you think that's not biblical. You go, Jesus doesn't follow us. Well, if there's good food, I think he will. I actually think he follows us all the time. I think Jesus likes good food. I think Jesus likes being invited in. You go, that's not Bible. Jesus doesn't invite himself. Absolutely, it's Bible. Uh, Book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who lets me in, I'm going to come in. I'm going to eat some of your food. It's Bible 101, man. And by the way, the, the irony of that passage in the book of Revelation is that when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, if you let me in, I'll eat with you. The irony is he's actually saying that to a church. The scary part of that text is I think it's possible for even Jesus to not be welcomed into his own church. And he's still, he's still today, here, now, he's knocking on the doors of our heart and he's going, hey, it's nice out here. It's going to be 107 on Wednesday. You think I could come in and have a little AC for a few minutes? Some crackers and a fruit punch? And the truth is, some of us, if Jesus does that to us today, we're going to close the door and we're going to say, you can find somewhere else. The thing about Jesus is that he doesn't care at all about your personal bubble. He, he's not interested in you feeling... It, we, we do this to him all the time. We, 
we, we have these sort of selective areas of our life that we invite him into, right? So, yeah, Jesus, I'll, whatever, I'll stop cussing for you. Glory to God, sure. I'll come to church once, a, once every three weeks. Fine, once every two, two weeks. Whatever, whatever, I'll come every week. Yeah, I'll start giving a little bit of money. And I'll do these things. You can have those things, but just don't, don't tell me who I can and cannot sleep with. And don't you dare ask me for more money. And don't you dare ask me how I need to love my neighbors. Don't you dare. Let's just keep business. Let's keep, you do you, I'll do me. Let's keep, kind of keep a safety here. Let's keep a safety net between the two of us. Because honestly, getting a little, you can die for my sin. I'll take your blood, but just, okay, calm down. And Jesus comes into our life, and we do this to him all the time. We go, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, but this stuff, don't you dare ask for it. You know what millennials, people of my generation, it's all about money. You can ask them to die for anything, but the minute you ask for money, they're like, you greedy man. (laughs) Actually, I think most millennials would have hated Jesus, because Jesus always talked about money. 38 parables, 29 of them, 28 of them are about money. If Jesus came into our churches and talked about money as much now as he did then, we'd all be like, I'm going to another church. I think we'd write Jesus off. We wouldn't like it because Jesus, you know why Jesus is always asking people for money? And by the way, Jesus did that all the time. Do you notice how many times in the Gospels Jesus is asking for people's stuff? How many times in the Gospels does Jesus ask if he could borrow somebody's boat? How many times does he say, hey, 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 can I come over? Just scratch at your house. Hey, hey. Can, can I just have your, uh, there's going to be a donkey. Can you go borrow the donkey? Get the donkey. I'm going to ride into town on the donkey. How many times the guy who created water comes to a woman in the desert and says, can I have a cup of water? <laughs> the inventor of water needs a cup of water. He comes to her and says, can I just have a cup of water? Jesus is always asking people for their stuff. Have you noticed that? And we get so offended when we bring money up at church, when we talk about the, the, the significance and the importance of generosity. We just get so, so angry because we're, we're like, just, just stop asking for, for these things. Just keep, keep it safe. And Jesus is not interested in us being safe from his kingdom in any part of our life. I'm going to ask you for money in a few minutes. <laughs> and I know there's going to be a few of you that are going to walk away and you're going to go, gosh, those people there, they just, they're so greedy. Jesus asking for people's stuff was not about his need for stuff. You understand his budget's doing fine. He's never needed your tithe dollars to accomplish his purposes. He's never at any point been like, well, if John would give 10% more, I could accomplish my sovereignty. (laughs) He's fine. All things are his. You ever thought about that? Talk about wealth. You think wealth is bad. God is wealthy. All things are his. And Jesus asks, he says, can I come over and have a meal at your house? The the truth is, here's the, the crazy part about the stuff in our life. Jesus is always asking for our stuff because he knows if he can get to our stuff, he can get to our hearts. 
If he can get into our stuff, he can get into our hearts. In fact, Jesus taught that. It turns out Jesus was brilliant. He said, wherever, friends, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If Jesus can get to your treasure, he can get to your soul. Did you know, true story, you're going to, I don't, I, I don't know if somebody's told, you're going to die. Did you know that? It will happen to all of us. The stats are pretty compelling. All of us will die. You know when you think about that? From dust to dust, from earth to earth, you're going to go back to the place you came. And what's crazy about that is think about this. That means that at the end of the day, every single one of you are going to be very generous people. You will give away everything that you thought was yours. You will be generous. Um, the key, what Jesus is trying to do, is teaching you to become generous because you, before you have to. Because at the end of life, all your stuff is going to be somebody else's stuff. Jesus wants to, you to become Christ-like and be able to give away before you die. To learn to die now while you still live. Jesus invites us to the cross. He will invite himself over for dinner. The second thing I want to point out and, and he's going to do that because he knows if he can get to your stuff, he can get to your heart. The second thing I want to point out about Jesus is, and this happens to Jesus all the time, do you, do you notice that every time Jesus eats food with people, he gets in trouble for the people he's eating with? In this story, the religious people, how can you eat with the, tender, the tax collectors? How can you eat with the sinners? How can you eat with these people? Jesus is always getting in trouble for the people he's eating with. Number two. If you want to follow Jesus, um, Jesus will bring people to dinner that you don't like. There are going to be people, you come to Jesus, and he's all of a sudden going to start bringing people to himself too, and you look over at them, and, and you go, I don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like how they voted. I don't like their perspective on that social issue. And we're going to come to him, and you're going to just find, literally, you're going to find that as you follow Jesus, there are other people following Jesus who you can't stand. That is literally the Bible's definition of church. Is that when you follow Jesus, and that's never happened to you, I'm sure, because you all here in Hillsboro all like each other and agree on everything and never disagree. Um, and there's nobody in the row that you're sitting in that you have problems with. And you've never had problems with the staff or the... Uh, never. Which is, of course, hogwash. You come to church and you think, this is the place where I'm supposed to like everybody. And that's not what church is. Church is not the place where you're called to mutually like everybody. It's the place where we're called to die and serve one another. And if you think this is a place where you go where everybody voted like you, then I got to tell you, you're preaching the wrong gospel. If we are together and one because everybody voted for the same president or the same thing or the same people, if we think that is the thing that makes the church the church, we are raising up the wrong Lord. But when Jesus is Lord, he is going to bring people to the table that you want to kill. Because friends, we do live in a society 
where churches are basically becoming, these people who vote this way and these people over here are going to vote and they're going to hang out together and we're never going to talk to each other. You want to know why our country is so fragmented? Because we have thought for all these years that Jesus said we're supposed to like our neighbors and Jesus never invited us to like our neighbors. We're called to love our neighbors. The issue of you liking friends, you can love somebody and struggle at your, your bones, in your bones to, to like them. But we have been invited by Jesus to love. Listen, if, if God, if this is one of my favorite quotes. It's not even in the Bible, but I think it's true. You, you, you know you've created God in your own image when God hates everybody that you hate. That hit about three seconds after. Yeah. You know, in Jonah 4, the book of Jonah, it's a story of a missionary who God called to go to a place, a place um, he was actually sent to the place where all of his en- enemies were. He was called to go to Nineveh, and when he went to Nineveh, why was that such a powerful story? He goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was literally, those were the people the Assyrians had killed his own people group, and God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to go tell your enemies, I want you to tell them that, Jesus, that God loves them. So Jonah goes, and he preaches, and unfortunately, it worked. And all of Nineveh, Believed in Yahweh. The text says that even the cows got saved. It's a phenomenal mission trip. Everybody, the whole city, the whole place, everybody's transformed. And you would think, man, what a great story of church success. The, the thing, just a mission trip. Finally, something good is going on. And what does Jonah do at the very We all love preaching Jonah 1 and 2. Nobody talks about Jonah 4. What does Jonah do in chapter 4? He goes and sits under a tree and says to God, I want to die. Why? He did it because he could not conceive of a God who loved his enemies. He was a racist. And he could not handle the fact that God didn't just love the Jews. He loved the whole world. And the truth is, friends, we do the same thing. It's like we lament that God loves the people that we hate. But the story of Jesus Christ is that every single person that you think you hate, Jesus Christ died for. And if that's hard for you, as hard as that is, may, you, may it just sit under a tree and cry out to God, but it doesn't change the fact that God loves your enemies. I think I actually said this to you last time I was here because it was right before the election. And I just want to say, if you voted for Hillary, I want to pray that God would send a Trump fan into your life. And that you would be forced to love them. And if you voted for Trump, I'm going to pray that God sends a Bernie or a Hillary fan into your life. And you have to love them. Because friends, if you can only like the people that you like, you're no different than the pagans. You're not called to like the people you like. You're called to love your enemies. Love the person who is different than you. And look them and see the work of God in their life. Because God created them and God loves them and God died for them. The third thing Jesus is going to do, he's going he's to invite himself over for dinner. He's going to bring a bunch of people you can't stand. And then thirdly, he is first going to call you, and then he's going to explain it. 
He's not going to explain everything. This is where you're going to go. Matthew, little do you know that you're going to follow me for three years. You're going to see me die. You're going to see me resurrect. And then down the road, you're going to get crucified for your death. Your family probably going to die. Everybody. Jesus doesn't tell him any of that. Had Jesus told him any of that, he would have never followed. Matthew would have been like, I'm going to stay right here at the safe tax collector's table that I have been given. Jesus doesn't tell him the whole story. He simply says, come follow me. Do you remember in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and says to Abram, come to a land I will show you. What a snarky move that is. A land I will show you? What kind of deal is this? Where's the fine print? There isn't. Come follow me. Can I at least know like, what I'm going to get out of this situation? No, follow me. Can you tell me what's going to happen to my family, my kids? No, come follow me. What about my business, my career? No, come follow me. Jesus always does that. God always does that. He doesn't lay out the whole map and go, this is all that's going to happen. You're going to go here, go here. This is going to happen to your family. Your life's going to end perfectly. It's going to be wonderful. He just says, come follow me. Leave it all. Die and follow me. I was 16 years old. I was raised in a non-Christian home. I was 16 years old. I was, my parents had just gone through a divorce. And I was confused about my identity, my sexuality, my future, my family. I didn't know anything about myself. I was, I was, I was, a, I was a mess. And I was 16 years old in my math class. And the two girls behind me were talking about when Jesus was coming back. They were arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading this book called The Left Behind series. And they were arguing about when Jesus was coming back. And I heard them talk about Jesus. And I went home. And I I never thought about Jesus, but I had a Bible. And my dad had given me his college Bible. And I flipped it open. And I simply read the story that we just read. That was the text I read. And I, I read the words, Jesus says, come follow me. And I heard God speak to my little heart and say, AJ, come follow me. And I said, okay. That's like faith right there. Okay. (laughs) And I started following Jesus. And little did I know that following Jesus, that I would have to leave a relationship with a a young woman that I thought I was going to marry. Little did I know that I would move to Eugene and and become a pastor. Little did I know I'd marry my wife and have to walk her through her father's husband, her her father's death. Little did I know that we would struggle with infertility for 10 years. Little did I know that we would move to Portland in the middle of a neighborhood where there have been 89 church plants, two of which still exist in the last 10 years. Little did I know that I'd be standing on a stage in front of a group of people telling them that I'm pastoring a church still that's working and God is using it, and little did I know that I'd be standing up here telling you I need your money. (laughs) This is all just, it's almost like a joke. I had no idea 20 years ago, 16 years old, God never said to me, this is how it's going to work out. We have been given an opportunity. For eight years, we've been a church that's been nomadic. We've been moving around, and having 400 people move around is a really challenging situation. And we have been given an opportunity. There's an old historic theater in Southeast Portland. It's called the Foster. It's called the Day Theater. It's on Foster and 55th. It was the first silent movie theater in Portland. 
And the woman who owns it loves Jesus, and she has given us an opportunity to buy it, and we want to start a community center and event space that would transform a neighborhood. A space that is used six days a week by the neighborhood and one day a week by the church. We've been given an opportunity to buy this and have an impact on a neighborhood for decades to come. And I need your money. Bad. Today. Now. We need a million dollars by September 1st. I've raised 800000 And I need some people today who are willing to make us, to help us get there. And the truth is, the money that you're going to give is going to help this, us buy this building and be able to change a neighborhood and plant churches for decades to come. But I need your help. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is this. It's really quite simple. I don't want to, I'm not going to do a song and dance up here. If you want to give, what we're going to do in a minute is we're going to take an offering and you're going to give your normal offering to the church as you normally would. And if you feel moved in your heart like that's something you want to help happen, you're going to do one of three things. Number one, you're going to put some cash in one of those little envelopes and you're going to write on the envelope for the theater or theater or paint a picture of my beautiful face or something like that. You're going to just write for the weird people of Portland. You're going you're gonna to write a check, and if, if the check is for the theater, you're going to write on the check for the theater, for Theophilus, something like that. Or if you want to give with a credit card or debit card, um, here's a, a number you're going to text right now, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow you to give through text. It's, actually, it's safe. It's through Simple Give, which is awesome. And if you want to give that way, can you just leave that up for a little bit? And I want to tell you, church, I've been given permission to do this. I'm not coming and asking for money. Jared and Ann are so, so supportive of this project. But the truth is, I've had to raise funds in the past, and it's always been really hard for me to raise funds. But it is not hard to raise funds this time because this is a move of God. And God is in this, and I need your help. Would you please help us? Okay, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus, we worship you. We invite you to come into our home. As you send people around us that we don't like, may we love them. But God as well, we follow you, not some plan that we have in our our minds. You call us, and then you explain later on. And God, it is the beauty of following the King of kings. I ask you, God, that you would provide for us that you would provide for Evergreen, that you would lead us and guide us. We trust you. You are God, we are not. And we worship you, Jesus. In the name of Christ, we pray. Would you say amen? Amen. Amen.